Yvonne Lawson, MBE, is founder and CEO of the Godwin Lawson Foundation. The foundation was set up in memory of Godwin Lawson, Yvonne's son who was stabbed in the street in Stamford Hill, trying to stop two of his old school friends being attacked by four young men. He was just 17. Following his death, Yvonne began researching gangs and knife crime. Shocked by its scale and impact, she became determined that Goodwin's legacy should be something to help keep young people safe and prevent other families having to go through the pain and loss that hers had suffered. Recognising that the law did little to deter the carrying of knives, Yvonne campaigned for change. With the support of the then Enfield MP, Nick Bois, she met and gained the backing of top politicians, including David Cameron, Theresa May and Boris Johnson. As a result, new legislation came into force in July 2015, requiring a mandatory sentence of at least six months for anyone carrying a knife for the second time. Yvonne uses Godwin's story to illustrate the terrible and far-reaching consequences that carrying knives can have and to educate young people on how to keep themselves safe, reach their full potential, and make a positive contribution to their communities. Welcome to Warrior Women, the podcast by the Warrior Women Network. In this episode, I ask Yvonne where she found her strength to help others, as well as what we need to do as a society to keep young people safe. I am humbled that Yvonne joins us today to share how even out of the deepest pain, can come positive change. Due to the sensitivity of this topic, we will not discuss the death of Godwin directly. Hi Yvonne, thank you so much for being here today. Oh, thank you Carla for having me, it's a pleasure. Listeners should know that Yvonne and I agreed these questions in advance to provide some psychological safety so that we can have this conversation. So firstly, it would be great to hear a little bit more about you. What's your role at the foundation? And also, how has your husband, who that you co-founded that with, been involved? Godwin Lawson Foundation was set up in memory of Godwin. And my role is the CEO um, of the foundation, and my husband co-supports me and he tends to do lots of mentoring, so mentoring young boys. And I think the aim of the foundation is to provide positive initiatives for young people to engage in, to keep them away from criminality. So what does your charity kind of specifically help you know what do they specifically do and what kind of services and policy work have you done to support these children essentially so we specially work with young people that are at risk so when we say at risk it could be a young person that's already got a brother or sister in a gang it could be a young person that live in a very deprived locality or environment It could be a young person going through challenging circumstances. So those are the particular young people. We tend to call them at risk. And the purpose of what we do is almost like to prevent early intervention prevention. So to identify those young people that we know that need intervention and then intervene in their lives. Do you think it it really helps them to know what you've been through and that opens up those conversations more easily? 
I mean, part of our project, well, all of our project starts with Godwin's story. And I think it's always good to have a story so that the young people will know the background of the foundation and to know that um, there is a real person behind the foundation, if it makes sense. Mm. So I always start, I always open my project with sharing Godwin's story with the young people. I always start from when Godwin was born as a mum, my expectation of him, and then talk about his first day at nursery, his primary school, secondary school, and then end up um, with his death and the impact of his death and how we were able to bounce back and get to where we are so so i think and the stories are really powerful i mean i still get young people that i've shared stories to about 10 years ago will stop me on the street and say i remember that story so it goes a long way how many times do you think you've had to speak that story out loud i've definitely shared that story over well over 300 times, 300, more than 500 times. I've shared it. I've shared it loads and loads and loads of times. And the thing is, um, there isn't any guarantee as to how I feel. Some some days I could share the story and just get, get along and, you know, not feel emotional. And some days I could just halfway through the story, I have to just stop and it's okay. So before I, I share the story, I always tell the young people, I don't know how I'm going to feel sharing this story because it is not just a story from a book. This is a real life story. Every bit of the story actually happened. I mean, I lost my father quite tragically over a decade ago. And, you know, can, and we, we can only even speak from our own lived experience. And I imagine some days that story fills you with like joy like you know thinking about those moments and I was touched reading about the foundation and you said that it was kind of inspired by his life and I think obviously there was a very tragic end to his life but he was such an inspiring kid even you know in the story of the actual incident that he was a hero you know Mm -hmm. he and do you find that in the just as frequently as it can bring you to tears, it can bring you joy as well. Yeah. Or yeah. That's kind of mixed emotions are always there. So, for example, when I'm talking about his personality and the kind of person he was and what he brought to our home, I always have a smile on my face because this was this young person that was full of life and always laughing and giggling and making jokes and just being a normal teenager. And that always, when I'm talking about that, that always brings a smile to my face. Um, and I think I think that's what I was meaning when I was talking about like the criminality and like knife crime is like when my you know my experience of policy work and um, government is that it's very hard to get granular on the stories. It's often statistical, right? It's this many children have mm-hmm. carrying knives. And uh, recently the Warrior Women Network got involved in a project where we were looking at the UK government was looking at the UK's first ever women's health strategy. And we did a survey and we had 500 people um, talk about their experience of the UK healthcare system. And mm-hmm. I was reading about all of these 
cases of kind of, you know, undiagnosed endometriosis. And I was thinking how you needed those 500 stories, you know, in front of the politicians. And so I think stories are incredibly powerful and often cut through statistics which can be so desensitized and actually not make human beings make the right decisions because you're looking at 10,000 children or so um what I wanted to ask you you sounded like you wanted to say something there no I think I just totally agree with you because I've always said that beyond all the statistics are proper lives and human beings and families that are grieving so every statistic has a, a, a human being aligned to it or assigned to it you, you know and I think you've just nailed it by saying how as a community and as a society we get so desensitized with the statistics and almost like lose track of who's really behind the statistics which families that are behind the statistics and how are they feeling how are they feeling what how are they feeling right now How are they going through every single day knowing that their loved ones will no longer be with them? How are they surviving? And I think society tends to lose track of that. Mm. Which is why I thought it'd be really interesting to ask you beneath the statistics, like what are the common reasons or maybe even stories, common stories about why children end up in gangs? And also like what are the kind of, I guess, misconceptions about youth involved in gangs as well. Because I bet, you know, I'm sure there's shocking statistics, but I'm sure the stories, just like when you stand up and tell yours, hit even harder. Yeah, so um, we've recently done a research for Haringey Council, and that research is going to go into their youth strategy. And the purpose of that was to speak to young people to find out why they get into gangs and what really drives them. And it was astonishing to know that there are so many factors that get young people into gangs. So some of them get into gangs to be loved because they feel like they, they don't get that at home. Some people get into gangs for uh, the money. Some people get into gangs for fear. You know, I've never met two children that gives me the same reasons. So there are so many reasons why young people get into into gangs. And and I think as a result, we need different varied interventions because when you speak to young people, they will tell you the different reasons why they are in gangs. Mm. And not, not, you know, no two are alike. And, you know, obviously very famously there was... I guess you might say it entered the public narrative when we started talking about, talking about hoodies, right? That's when it felt like the conversation really grew around gangs. And, you know, there's this very strong visual image of, let's be honest, often a non-white child with, you know, a hood up. What are the common kind of misconceptions? Because especially in the UK right now, heartbreakingly, there are a huge amount of children experience adversity at home. And I don't believe that there is such a thing as a bad kid. That's my personal view. But I would be interested in 
when you're meeting with policymakers, when you're, what are kind of some of the initial misconceptions that you almost have to break through before you can even have a real conversation about these children? Yeah. So uh, I think you've rightly said that, that there are misconceptions about gangs and knife crime. And it's often, you know, disproportionality, young black men that are often affected by knife crime. And as a result, most people tend to alienate themselves or find that that's their problem and not my problem. So if it's a young black man, then they're likely to be in gang or they probably deserve to have died because they were probably selling, selling drugs. So that is the misconception. And when Godwin died, I find that as a mum, I suppose my parenting skills were being analysed. So, you know, your son's died through knife crime, so it's probably you're a bad mum, you didn't do something right. Or, okay, he's a black, tall man. He's, you know, he's probably deserved to die because he was in a gang himself. So that's that kind of misconception that's there in the media, in the community. And it was disheartening because I had to really fight hard to break those barriers and educate people for them to know that it that's not the case, that you have got real people that can be that anybody could be affected by knife crime. I remember going to this really powerful exhibition run by St Mungo's, a homeless charity, and they had, my husband's a portrait artist, and there's this really powerful exhibition where it was an audio exhibition, so they had portrait artists paint the pictures of homeless people, and then they gave you earphones, a bit like how if you go to, you know, an art exhibition, and you listen to the stories. And each of the stories was how this person had ended up on the streets. And there was this one guy who used to work at NASA as a rocket scientist. And he had kind of suffered a car crash and he'd had brain damage. And, you know, he, it's a story of basically how even, even you know, inverted commas, somebody who had this well-respected job can kind of end up on the street. And, you know, this is something that, I think we've really seen in the pandemic that lots of people who maybe had a great career, you know, suddenly lost their jobs or were on universal credit. And it really exposes you to the fact that actually we're all interconnected and these things can happen to us. And as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking that's in part why Godwin's story is so powerful because he is almost an exception to that narrative rule, right? He was a great kid who was achieving amazing things. Um, and it feels really sad that we can, what we're basically saying is we can only care about people in society that we think are worthy of care. Absolutely. And, that, and there are people that are unworthy and there are people that are worthy. And so, I don't know, like any reflections on that? There's a lot of education that needs to be done um, because I think society need to, kind of learn and, and learn that we are each other's keepers um, regardless of our complexion and where we come from. And it doesn't really hurt to to care and to empathise 
and not to be always quick at judging because I think people are very quick at being judgmental and very critical I think there's a lot of people out there like that and coming from where I am I think it breaks my heart Mm. you must have your heart broken daily right isn't that the tough I mean, when you speak to bereaved parents, when you experience your own, you know, your own trauma relived, when you meet these children. But I think one of the things I really wanted to focus on this podcast is that, especially in these these times, it's very easy to focus on what we can't do. And the power of you to me, and the thing that makes me emotional saying it is like that you have chosen to move into action on something and to drive change around something. And so as much as it is heartbreaking, I would really like to stay focused on your successes. Like you've had so many successes and I would love to hear some of those. Also for you to hear, because I think I was just, again, reflecting this morning on a podcast interview with Caroline Casey, who was the first podcast um, interview that we did. And I talked about this as being an entrepreneur, which I think in in a lot of ways you are because you're like breaking new ground in what you've been doing. It's really easy to like look at this staircase and you get so many steps forward and then you go, oh God, you look down and you go, wow, that was really a struggle just to get here. And then mm-hmm. you look at how far you've got to go. And and what I would love to do is just, as I said to Caroline, like sit on this step with you for a minute and like look at your achievements. So it'd Aww. be great to hear of like, where have you had some really big impact and, and doing what? That's so comforting to hear that, um, Carla. It's just, um, it's been really comforting to look back and and observe the, the the real changes that we've made, especially in young people's lives, their families' lives. So um, the, the, there is a story that you know is very close to my heart. Um, a young girl. We were approached by the school. He she was going through lots of issues. She was being groomed. She was being exploited. She was in an abusive relationship and she was underachieving. So the school, you know, wrote all these challenging issues and said, if she doesn't improve, she would definitely be, you know, excluded. So we went in with a hat on, our intervention. We started doing one-to-one mentoring, you know, listening to what the issues are, working with her in terms of how we could overcome those issues. And and two years down the line, she was the head girl. And that's that, you know, that to me is what GLF, Godwin Wilson Foundation, stand for in terms of valuing life, nurturing life and protecting life. Mm. So um, that's just one typical example. in terms of some of the boys that we've worked with, the fact that they were able to stay on that school and stay on to do their A-levels and move on to university is really reassuring and rewarding for me. Working with families, uh, working with mothers, I feel really empowered looking at me and, and 
when I'm sharing my story with them, for them to feel hope and a sense of, um, I think, a sense of hope and a, a sense of belonging. It kind of just gives me strength to know that. Right. We know what, what, what happened to Godwin was so tragic. But if we can use Godwin's story to make a real meaningful change in this horrible, horrible world, then that's fulfilling for me. Do you feel it's a horrible world or is that just a flippant? Like, do you, because I think that's the thing, isn't it, about running the kind of foundation that you do. You are, for all of the things that you are achieving, it's... I remember someone describing kind of charity work a bit like a colander, like or a sieve, you know, like there's always just more and more like pouring more, you know, pour more and more into it. And there's just always going to be more going in and like more falling out the bottom. Is it, this is a really deep question, but like, how do you, how do you find your strength when something like that has happened to you? And then you continue to see it happening to other people. Like, does it leave you with a sense of this is a horrible world? Um, it is quite a deep question. Um, I think resilience and just having my faith is what's really kept me personally. And having positive people around me, encouraging me rather than... Um, discouraging me i'll always remember a talk that i went to given by camilla batman highly who's the founder of kids company and she showed a kind of very haunting picture of a child's bedroom with hypodermic needles in it and she asked everyone in the room to get in the mindset of a child who lives with this every day and then she asked how angry do you feel and she said how much would you do to get out of that life and honestly, I think about that most weeks. And the reason why I share this is because I think it's really easy for me to find empathy for children in this story. But I cannot imagine what it took to have empathy for those who took the life of your son and not just forgive them, but make it your life's work to prevent other children being lost to kind of gun or knife crime or committing it. Um like truly you are a walking angel on this planet. Aww. And one of the things that we kind of talk about in our conversations in the Warrior Women Network is like being a vessel. And that's because many of us have experienced things that have led us to do work that prevents others experiencing the pain that they did. And I wonder at what point after Godwin's passing did you realise that you wanted to be part of the solution? And does that kind of analogy of a vessel resonate with you? Um, yes, I think it does. I mean, it took about three to four months of going through just pure pain and trauma and unable to look in the mirror unable to sit to lie uh, or eat or drink. This is how bad it was. And then one day my friend um, came to me and said, we've actually organized a, a march for you. And I remember saying, I won't be able to go. And she said, Yvonne, just put your clothes on. We just, just, all you have to do is just turn up. 
And I remember going to this march, and that march was marching against knife crime. And after that march, when I came home, I felt much better in my spirit. I felt much better. I looked at, I was able to look to look in the mirror for the first time. And I think it was that point. It was how I felt that drove me to be part of the solution. Because the thing is, I had two choices, Carla. I could remain how I was, which was to draw my curtains and just stay in bed and not move and not do anything. Or to pick myself up and dress up and look in the mirror and go out there and prevent another mother going through what I had gone through. And I think I decided at that point that I wanted to be part of the solution because it made me feel better. Oh, gosh. I mean, I'm sure listeners hearing that will be stopping in their tracks listening to that. And what I hear there is you had to choose to fight for yourself before you fought for other people. And I'm sure many people can experience that in their life, especially in relation to grief. Yeah. And gosh, what an amazing, what an amazing friend. <laughs> you know? And I think the other thing about grief is often it is, it's one step in front of the other, right? It's like, put on your clothes. It's like, have a drink of water. It's like one step, Absolutely. literally one micro step. And then it's like, you've got your clothes on, take yeah. a step. And, you know, what? yeah, what an amazing friend. So obviously, you know, you you are an activist and um, I, I think it would be great for listeners to hear a little bit more about how you've changed UK policy. So, you know, you've kind of the initial stages of your fight, like you say, are putting your clothes on and getting to that march and making that decision. But probably the thing you are most famous for and the thing that you, I would imagine, has led to you becoming an MBE was, I mean, it's just an amazing thing, like changing UK policy. Like, it's just so huge. Like, how does somebody change UK policy? Like, how did you do it? Like, what what are the top tips for anyone here who's like, I want, you know, menopause to be properly supported at work or I want more flexible. How does somebody do that? I suppose you start with an objective, having that objective, what you want to do, what you want to change and sticking to it regardless of what anybody else says. Because along the way, you will meet people that will just dismiss what you want to do and disregard it. So be consistent in your vision that this is what I want to do and I'm sticking to it. Because if A, if one person doesn't help you, keep pursuing somebody else would. So having that vision, and in terms of how we got there, it was just lobbying. And I suppose because people... I understood the vision and the vision was consistent every single day, regardless of what we were going through, got them to understand what the vision was and they wanted to be part of it. And if people understand what you want to do and it's for a good cause, you will get them supporting you. So I think we were able to lobby and get the cha- the, the signatures because that's the first step is you want people to sign up and support you. So once we got the signatures, then we're able then to 
I think it's got to be over 10,000. We were then able to go to 10 Downing Street. Actually, I did get an invitation to 10 Downing Street. So I went to see David Cameron at the time and shared the vision with, with him. So it's vision, vision, vision. And then once I shared the vision with him, which was if a young person get caught using a knife for the second time, then there should be a mandatory sentence. So before that law, young people that were caught carrying a knife were just given cautions and cautions and cautions. And as a mum, I just note, uh, observed that that was not sending the right message. So the message was, if young people keep getting caution, then there's no deterrent. So we needed a deterrent that will stop them. So David Cameron, once I explained all that to him, said, oh, that is really a good intention. The vision is really clear. And I promise you, I will support you. And this is how I'll support you. And he was very um, open. He was very frank. He didn't mislead me. He said, I can't stand here and change the law. What I have to do is I have to take this to 10 Downing Street and get my MPs to support. Once you're able to get lots of MPs backing this um, law, then we can change the law. And that's exactly what he did. And David Cameron, if you're listening, thank you so much. <laughs> he took it to the House of Parliament and I was able to get over 482 MPs actually agreeing agreeing with the with the law and saying yes we think we need to we need to send that message of deterrence out there so that young people don't continuously carry a knife and that was it so in 2015 we were able to um change that law and and you know up to today if you caught carrying a knife for the second time then there is a mandatory sentence for you gosh what a power i mean I, that was one of the most clear descriptions of how to change UK policy I think I've ever heard. And oh, I just love the bloody minded of that in that as well. You were like, I can imagine you just restating that line over and over again to people like mm-hmm. this is what we need to do. And it's so clear. You're, I think it's amazing. Oh, and, thank you. <laughs> I, you know, I don't know. You know, people who know me and people who've listened to this podcast will know I'm quite an emotional person and I care a lot about people. And I just think I know what it's like trying to do the kind of thing that you're doing. And I think I hope you're really, really proud of yourself. And I don't know if anyone's told you this today, but I'm I'm super proud of you. Oh, thank you. And I'm really proud to know you and learn from you. And I hope that listeners will learn from you from this podcast episode you know to me you kind of you represent a kind of leadership that we need in this world which is very in the work I just came back from COP26 in Glasgow and um, there were sort of two rooms there for me there was the room where all of the leaders were and Mm. there were the rooms where the real leaders were and those leaders are the people who are in in the work with the people down in the trenches, mm-hmm. literally in the Amazon with their feet in oil or, you know, mm-hmm. and I think 
we've become scared as a society to get attached to feel to feel the grief you know and and i what i think you managed to do that day was get people you know not that day or through the course of that policy change is to get people to empathize right to get people beyond the statistics so i'm sure we could talk for ages but i just wanted to i know it's it's tricky to talk about and it was really important for me for you to be on this podcast because i knew you'd say these really insightful things how can how can people kind of find you and, and and is there anything that you need right now from people in terms of support okay thank you um i think um in terms of support i think we just need to support each other i think as a nation as a community we need to um you you mentioned the word empathy i think that's we need to start bringing empathy into how we raise our children because i think yeah lots of young we are kind of raising a, a generation where there isn't any empathy so i think we need to move closer to the basics that we've kind of uh, um neglected or don't see the significance of it so i think that is important because when you feel someone's pain and when you empathize what somebody's going through you're more likely to help them mm. so i think that's key so um i just want to end by saying thank you so much for having me if you are listening i think violence is preventable not inevitable everyone has got a role to play in tackling the root causes of knife crime we know that poverty and deprivation and inequality all has a role to play but we can't be complacent we can make a real difference when we all work together thank you Yvonne oh thank you so much thank you if you want to find more information it's www.godwinlawsonfoundation.org we need more volunteers please come and support play your part I'm Carla Morales-Lee, and you've been listening to the Warrior Women podcast, which was produced by the amazing women at Birdline Media. I really hope you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. This is the last episode of this first series. Honestly, it's been amazing to receive your emails saying how much you've learned and been inspired by our guests. As we get to planning series two, Keep up to date on all things Warrior Women by signing up to our newsletter or joining the network at warriorwomennetwork.com. A special thanks to the brilliant team at Birdline Media for making this such an incredible piece of production that I'm truly proud to have created with them. And thank you to you, the listeners. In just six weeks, nearly 1,000 of you have tuned in. If you have a message for the world on how to make it better for people and planet, the time is now. I urge you to create your own podcast. Intersectional women need to be in all the conversations that impact us. If I can do it, you can do it too.